Hey, it's great that you could be with us. The Bible reading for this message is taken from Acts chapter 13. It'd be great if you could hit pause on this video and go give that a read. That's Acts chapter 13. We'll see you back here in just a second. Something you may or may not know about me is that I am a huge Harry Potter fan. Every year in December, Leanne and I watch all eight movies just back to back over the space of a few days. And, you know, at first we thought, should we make this a tradition? Shouldn't we? Is this something we want to do every year? But honestly, this is now the third year that we're doing it. And I'm so excited for December to roll around so that we can do it again. If you know the story, fairly early on, we meet a character called Severus Snape, who is one of the teachers at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, where Harry is a student. And one thing that we learn about Snape very early on is that he and Harry really don't get along. As the story unfolds, we, we learn that Snape once was one of the bad guys, one of the followers of, of the Dark Lord, Lord Voldemort, uh, sort of. In actual fact, he was one of the good guys, a spy for, for Dumbledore, who's headmaster of Hogwarts School. Uh, he's a spy for Dumbledore, and uh, we know that actually, contrary to what Voldemort thinks, he's one of the good guys. That's until book six when he kills Dumbledore. Uh, a whole lot of Voldemort's followers burst into the castle uh, of, of Hogwarts school and they meet Dumbledore on, on top of a high tower. Uh, and then Snape bursts in, points his wand at Dumbledore. And just before he casts the curse that's gonna kill him, Dumbledore says to Snape, Severus, please. And Snape kills him. Now, uh, at this point, we're wondering, was Snape one of the good guys after all? At this point, it really doesn't look like it. It looked like he wasn't undercover for Dumbledore. He was undercover for Voldemort. But in the final book, Harry actually gets to see a whole lot of Snape's memories that completely flip the story on its head. As it turns out, uh, Dumbledore was dying anyway. As it turns out, him and Snape had hatched this plan months ago. As it turns out, when Dumbledore said, Severus, please, it wasn't Severus, please don't do this. It was actually Severus, please don't back down now. Severus, please don't go back on the plan. Severus, I know you don't want to, but this needs to happen. Now, at this point, I've probably said too much if you haven't watched it. And if you have, then you know the rest of the story. But just think for a moment what it would be like to jump in at book six, or maybe even at book seven. Now, you had some, you'd have some idea of what's going on. You'd get a sense of the betrayal. We know that, that Snape is one of, the, one of the teachers at Hogwarts. Uh, we get the sense that there's... Um, some sort of connection that should be there between him and Dumbledore, but we miss a lot of the depth. We don't really appreciate what's going on in that moment without the rest of the story up until that point. And what I wanna suggest this morning is that quite often, that is the way that we read our Bibles. It's often easier just to read the New Testament because the Old Testament is, well, weird. But when we forget that it's all one beautifully unfolding, interconnected story, I think we miss the depth of what's going on. 
This morning we're kicking off a new series in the book of Acts, and uh, we're picking up a chapter 13 where um, the second major section of the book of Acts begins. Uh, in the first part, chapters 1 to 12, the focus was on Peter and mainly his ministry, not completely, but mainly to the Jews. In chapter 13, until the end of the book, uh, the, the focus shifts onto Paul and his ministry mainly, not completely, but mainly to the Gentiles. So, uh, pick up verse 1. Now, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, a few others that don't really matter too much for present purposes, uh, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, just two quick things before we jump in. Uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to be looking at everything that happens in chapter 13. We'll mainly be focusing on uh, what happens from uh, verse 13 onwards. Uh, there's a little story that happens in verses 4 to 12 that uh, we're just going to skip over. But it follows some of, this, uh, some of the same patterns as what we see in the later story. So you might want to go back and read that again afterwards and see if you can see some of the same things going on. The second, though, is that we're mainly going to be talking about Paul. Uh, in, the, in verse 1, you might have noticed we were introduced to Saul. Uh, same person. He just has two names. It's not that he was Saul and became Paul, as a lot of Christians uh, seem to think. It's that he actually has two names. Saul is Hebrew name, Paul his Greek name, and sometimes he rolls with one or the other. Uh, at this point in the story, in verse 9, you'll notice he um, gets... Uh, um, we're told that he's also called Paul, and from then on, that's what he's called. Um, but it's the same person. I'm just going to be talking about Paul, just just to just to make it easier. Uh, but I will leave an article in uh, the description below if you are interested in this whole Saul-Paul dynamic going on. So let's pick up the story of verse 13. Paul and Co. arrive at Pisidian Antioch. Uh, it was a Sabbath, so they go into the synagogue. And uh, we read in verse 15, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And they did. So they did. Uh, so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at what Paul taught, what the people thought, and what we ought to do about it. So what Paul thought, uh, what, what Paul does is essentially to take these people through the story of Israel to show how it reaches a climax in Jesus. This isn't for the first time uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, we might think of Stephen's sermon that he gave in Acts chapter 7, uh, except that where Stephen was focusing was on Israel's faithlessness, whereas Paul here is focusing on God's faithfulness. Uh, so let's take a quick look at what Paul has to say. And notice at each point, who is the one acting? Who is the one doing the doing um, in Paul's um, sermon? Paul talks about the Exodus, how God made his people prosper during their stay in Egypt, and how with mighty power, God led them out of Egypt. He talks about the wilderness wanderings, how God put up with all their complaining in the wilderness. Then Paul talks about the conquest and how God led them into the promised land and helped to drive out the nations that were opposing them. Uh, he talks about the time of the judges and how that came to an end in 1 Samuel 8 when the people asked for a king, first for Saul and then for David, who, verse uh, 22, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, 
a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, that's the point that Paul seems eager to land on. Uh, God's plans and purposes feature David and the covenant that was made with him in 2 Samuel 7, um, where God promises David that there will forever be a king uh, from his line on the throne. Uh, All of that reaches uh, a climax in Jesus. In verse 23, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, whom he promised. John the Baptist gets a mention uh, before he hones in on Jesus, which I must admit I found a little bit odd at first. Uh, He's kind of building up to this point where he's going to tell us about Jesus and and what an incredible king he is. And along the way, it kind of takes us deeper to talk about John. Uh, It kind of seems like he got distracted or just felt the need to mention John for the sake of completeness or something. It seems a little bit arbitrary to me. Uh, But when we take some time to appreciate what it is that's going on. When we take some time to appreciate the depth that's there in the story, uh, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. So uh, put John to the one side, uh, hold that thought. We're going to come back to him later. Um, No doubt what you did notice is how Paul is so concerned with using the Old Testament to tell us about Jesus. So again, verse 22, he, he calls David a man after God's own heart from uh, 1 Samuel 13. When he comes to talking about Jesus himself, who was descended from David, um, he quotes from some of the Psalms, from Psalm 2, which is about God installing his chosen king. Uh, Psalm 16, which is about God's vindication of the one who is faithful to him. But perhaps most the most important place that Paul wants to quote from is from Isaiah. Paul quotes from Isaiah, mainly from uh, Isaiah 40 to 55, uh, where a, a place in Isaiah where we're introduced to the servant of the Lord. Now, uh, just who that servant is in Isaiah is a little bit of a tricky question. Um, at some points, mainly in chapters 49 to 55, it seems like it's an individual, um, the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Um, the servant seems to be talking about him. Uh, but in other places, the nation of Israel actually seems to be God's servants and not a very good servant at that. Um, So Isaiah 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I'll keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. But then later in that same chapter, Uh, We read this, who is blind but my servant and and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind uh, like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. Now, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions that that come out of that, uh, but it is something that I've done some other work on uh, with faith-seeking understanding, which you've uh, maybe heard me talk about before. So again, I'll include a link in the description below where you can chase that up if you would like to dig deeper. Uh, where um, in a lesson where we focus in on who the servant of the Lord is and just how that um, is tied to the entire uh, Bible story. Uh, So you can head to the link in the description below or you can just visit our website, faithseekingunderstanding.co.za. The short answer though is that the servant represents the nation of Israel. The servant was supposed to be a light to the nations, a covenant to the people, to use the words of Exodus 19, a, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, um, to use the words of Deuteronomy 4, uh, uh, the um, 
sort of embodiment of God's wisdom to the rest of the nations around. Um, but they didn't do that. But an individual who's also called the servant of the Lord has come to, to do that job for them, to be what Israel should have been but weren't, uh, to act as their representative. He is faithful, and because of his faithfulness, Israel are restored as a nation. And that, in fact, is what this whole section of Isaiah uh, seems to be about. God restoring his people and establishing his kingdom. So Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain will be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that's where John the Baptist fits in. He's the messenger from Isaiah 40. So uh, Luke chapter three, in the 15th year of uh, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then he goes on to quote just what we read from Isaiah 40. So what is Paul going on about? Well, Jesus is God's Messiah, descended from David, who has come as God's faithful servants to bring restoration and renewal to God's people. Remember, But remember what the, the job of the servant was. Um, to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. And in Acts 13, 34, Paul says that God raised Jesus from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Now quoting from Isaiah 55. Uh, and in the same chapter, also in Isaiah 55, it'll go on to say, surely you will summon nations you don't know. Uh, and nations you don't know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Now, I know that's a lot. And if you didn't take in all the details, that's totally fine. You can go listen to uh, all that again. You might want to dig deeper in the lesson from faith seeking understanding. Um, but the point uh, is really just this. There are two things that, are, that I want you to walk away from this with. Uh, the first is just how rich the story is and how much deeper the story is when we read the New Testament in light of the old. When we see that it's all one story, that's all one interconnected, beautifully unfolding story of God's plans and purposes, we start to appreciate more of the depth that's going on. We start to see that the story of the nation of Israel actually isn't a different story from us and God's church. Or, in other words, in Christ... God is doing what he's always been doing, just in a much fuller way. The second thing that I hope you noticed was the place of the nations and where they fit in. Uh, that's if you have an ESV uh, or a CSB. The NIV actually says the Gentiles in, in Isaiah. Same thing. The nations, the Gentiles, basically not the nation of Israel or not the Jews. That, that's the entire point. 
that's going to be really important for how the rest of the story unfolds and where we are in um, the book of Acts uh, as a whole. So let's move on to thinking about what the crowds thought. Picking up now at uh, around verse 42, when Paul finished his sermon, he and Barnabas got up to left, uh, got up to leave, and um, the crowds, the, the the people listening, actually were so impressed with what he had to say that they encouraged them and said, "Guys, can, could you come back next week? I mean, we'd love to hear more from you." And so they're like, "Yep, yeah, sure, why not?" And when they arrived, they found that the whole town had pitched up. Uh, so now the Jews weren't happy about this. Uh, so verse 45, when they saw the crowds, they were full with jealousy and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And I must admit, I found this really odd. Uh, I guess that's just what jealousy can do. They were so concerned with keeping their Judaism pure, uh, kind of like the pure bloods from Harry Potter, actually. Uh, God's covenant was with Israel, wasn't it? Uh, it was with them and only them, surely. Well, look at Paul and Barnabas' response. They, they take us back to Isaiah, which, I mean, you'll remember was where he spent a lot of time in his sermon the previous week. Um, the same sermon that they seem to quite enjoy, actually. Uh, verse 46, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We turn now to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes from Isaiah again. I have made you to be a light for the nations or for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what Israel were meant to be all along. This is what Israel had failed to be. And this is what Jesus redeemed and uh, with Jesus uh, by and by extension, his followers too. And th that includes us. Um, that commission has been carried forward. That commission to be a light to the nations, to be uh, a city on a hill, if you will. Um, and this is what the Jews were debating with Paul. The Jews who were debating with Paul and Barnabas just couldn't see. Acts 13 kicks off the second major section in the book of Acts, focusing in on the ministry of Paul, especially his ministry to the nations or to the Gentiles. And this proves to be a pretty thorny issue in the church. Uh, in a few chapters time, they're going to have to call the council of Jerusalem because of the way that uh, all the confusion that comes with Jews and Gentiles doing this whole Christian thing and not quite knowing how that's meant to look. Uh, the rest of the New Testament is made up of, of letters, uh, a lot of them written by Paul, fleshing out this issue of how exactly are Jewish and Gentile Christians meant to get along? How are we meant to do this whole Christian thing together? And how are we meant to be one body when we come from different places? So let's, uh, let's wrap up our time together, just thinking together about what we ought to do about all this. What should we think about all this? What, how does this hit home uh, for us? Well, if nothing else, I think we can learn a thing or two about tribalism. The Jews were peeved because Paul and Barnabas wanted to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, uh, for them to be included in God's kingdom, to be numbered among God's people. You must remember that Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. As far as they could help it, they had um, no dealings with Gentiles. But here they were being spoken to like they could be part of God's people. No thanks, thought the Jews. The question is, do you ever think like that? 
do you ever look at a certain type of person and think, gosh, no, the gospel, the gospel is for everybody in theory, but for them, probably not. Or, or perhaps it's, it's actually something along the lines of, sure, yeah, it'd be wonderful if they got saved. It'd be wonderful if they heard about Jesus, but that would mean I'd have to associate with them. And actually, I'm not so keen on that. You know, maybe, maybe it isn't just the divide between Christian and non-Christian. Um, maybe it's even between Christians. Humans are so good at drawing boundary lines and putting up fences and making sure that we stay on our side of the fence and that they stay on theirs. Uh, but for, you know, maybe it's, um, maybe it's theology. Maybe it's a different view about baptism or uh, the gifts of the Spirit or uh, you name it, you fill in the blank. Uh, maybe it's other things, uh, race, class, uh, age, Again, you fill in the blank. There's so many things that that humans pick on that divide us. What Paul and Barnabas teach us is that uh, those who reject Jesus reject God's kingdom. No one who turns their back on Jesus can be a part of God's people. But for anybody who does turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, um, anybody who does call Jesus their Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter where they're from, what their background is, how much they own. None of that matters. So let's not make it matter more than it should. Let's not draw boundary lines and put up fences where we're actually not supposed to. Instead, let us love those who aren't part of God's kingdom. The, the commission to, uh, to uh, join Jesus in being God's servant It's actually a commission that we find right in the beginning of the book of Acts, where we're told to be God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. So let's love people enough to to tell them about God's kingdom and to and to preach them the good news about the the savior and the king that is Jesus Christ. And for those who already are part of God's kingdom, let's treat them like it. Let's act like it. Let's not put up boundaries where there are none. Uh, let's not put up fences that keep us apart. Let's break down the dividing walls of hostility that, that, that keep us uh, apart. That doesn't mean we're going to agree about everything. That doesn't mean that we stop pursuing truth for the sake of, of um, not debating and not, and not getting along. But it does mean that we love each other despite our differences and agreements.